Hello, and welcome to the Nursum podcast. My name is Landon James. I am a registered nurse in a large urban emergency department and a rural critical care transport nurse in the province of British Columbia. And my name is Monique McLaughlin, and I'm an emergency nurse practitioner at an urban emergency department in the province of BC. Um, and uh, welcome. So this is our first Nursum podcast, and the purpose of our podcast is we want to really bring emergency nurses together around some emergency nursing issues, sometimes big, sometimes very small, um, and have nurses challenge their practice in a larger community. Uh, so often we just wait for people to give us information as to how we should be practicing, and truly a professional nurse should be looking for what they should be doing different instead of being waiting waiting to be told. I think that's a great um, idea, Landon. We often talk about evidence-based practice, and I think that as nurses, sometimes we think of it as a very passive process instead of an active process. So I do think it's important for us to be motivated to understand why we're doing something and maybe challenging ourselves to say, well, we've always done it this way. Should we still be doing it this way? Um, so it's kind of exciting for us to have this chat in my kitchen table um, to talk about some of these issues. Excellent. So yes, we are in our million dollar kitchen table <laughs> studio uh, for our first podcast. And, and today we thought it was timely to talk about the ACLS 2015 guidelines, which have recently been released from, by ILCOR for public comment until February 28th. Um, so ILCOR being the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, kind of the organization that all of the heart and stroke equivalents around the world have decided to build themselves around so that we're all doing the same things around the world. And so every five years, they come out with some new guidelines, uh, the most recent being the 2010 guidelines. And now we're into the 2015 guidelines. And this time around, they've posted all of their recommendations online uh, for public comment. And anyone can go online and, and see that. And we'll uh, have the website that you can go to in the notes for the show on the website. So uh, we definitely encourage you to listen to our podcast today. We're only going to cover five or six of the uh, topics. There's about 100 of them online. And go online, read them, and, and submit comment. It's not a difficult process. Uh, they closed February 28th, and they actually have a conference a few weeks after that to discuss all of the public feedback. So, think, Sorry, Landon. I think we were just wanting to actually speak about things that nurses would actually benefit from. So um, as Landon said, we would totally encourage you to get on the website and look at all the 110 recommendations, but these are the ones that we felt would affect you at the bedside. Um, and so that's why we're talking about them. Sorry to interrupt. No, it's great. So let's get right into it. We're kind of going to build it around uh, some oxygen delivery, talk a lot about BLS uh, or basic life support, a bit about drugs, and then uh, we'll finish off with some stuff about STEMIs. And so let's get right into it. So the first thing we're going to talk about is oxygen for acute coronary syndrome. Now, this in the 2010 guidelines, came out as if their SATs are greater than 94 and they don't look like they're trying to die, don't give them oxygen. And I do not know what won't die about this, but I have not seen any hospital yet that does this well. It seems it's just our comfort zone to put someone on two or three liters of nasal prongs and, well, it, it just might help. Yeah, and it's interesting because you and I were talking a little bit about that, and I think that sometimes as nurses you feel like you need to do something active. So somebody's having chest pain, what can I 
do to help it? Um, and I think we need to kind of get them to understand it's not just a question of this being a benign kind of an intervention. It actually is causing harm. And that's really where the recommendation came from, is that we're actually making them worse. They're, uh, the penumbra of that ischemia is actually getting worse. And so they have poorer outcomes. So perhaps we need to sell it that way instead of saying, well, you know, maybe we should give them a little oxygen if they look sick rather than say no oxygen because it's making them worse. Yeah. I and know. I think that's the big difference for me is this is actually making people worse, mm. not that it's just not doing anything. Absolutely. Uh, second one, uh, CPR for people with a pulse. Uh, the, the current guideline is basically saying when they've researched it that there is no harm in doing CPR with people with a pulse. I remember 20 many years ago mm -hmm. uh, being told in a CPR class if I did one chest compression on someone with a pulse I'd kill them and and that was the mantra back then and mm -hmm. a number of cardiac arrests I've walked into in my career where there's five or six people all checking for a pulse and just from looking at them they're dead. Exactly. So really when in doubt do CPR. The funny thing the bystanders have been told that for years mm -hmm. especially from 911 operators who aren't even looking at the patient uh, they tell them to just start CPR and here we are trying to be smart about it and, mm -hmm. and we're not helping the patient at all and really if you think about pediatrics we've been doing this for so many years if the kids bradycardic and they obviously look like they're not perfusing we're doing CPR on a beating heart so it is interesting for us to finally come to this point and say instead of us all wondering do you feel a pulse is that my pulse is that the patient's pulse just going ahead and doing CPR and frankly if they were alive they tell you to stop so we might as well just do CPR if they look dead. That's a great point. Uh, so then third one mechanical CPR devices these well, you can't go to a conference these days without five or six of those being uh, on the trade room floor and the the current guideline the research they've done although as as with all of these the research isn't super sturdy on a lot of these things but it's basically said there's no difference between human uh, CPR and a mechanical CPR. Now, you need to consider that this is no difference to actually doing CPR. Mm. Um, and some of the faults with this might be that people get so concerned with the equipment that no one's actually doing chest compressions right. while we're trying to hook up whatever device uh, you seem to be using. Uh, one thing that they, they did point out, though, that if you're in an environment where bad CPR is almost guaranteed, mm -hmm. so back of an ambulance being one of them, on the way to the OR or the cath lab, someone kneeling on a bed trying to do CPR down a hallway, that they actually would be beneficial. So uh, mechanical device better than bad CPR, right? but mechanical device not necessarily better than good CPR. So use yeah. your brain, think about it, and mechanical device definitely better than no CPR. So if there's a dead person laying there for 45 seconds while everyone's trying to get this machine on them, mm -hmm. maybe we should start with good CPR, get some defibrillation in there if required. Mm -hmm. and once the teams kind of organize themselves, maybe throw the mechanical device on. Absolutely. And one of the other benefits, and you're, I think you're going to be talking about it afterwards, is the fact that when you've got the mechanical device on, once all the mayhem is sorted out, is that you can continue to give CPR and not have to stop to defibrillate. That CPR can kind of continue. And so that's kind of one of the benefits. And I do think you're going to be talking about continuous chest compression. So go right ahead, Landon. Yeah. So one of the other things things is continuous chest compressions versus the old 30 to 2. Uh, and and the, even with the 2010 guidelines, if, if you didn't know CPR, the person on the other end of the phone would just tell you to do continuous compressions until 
the person wakes up or the first uh, responder gets there. Uh, they've decided now with these recommendations to stick with that. If you don't know CPR, do continuous compressions. Uh, if we're smart, uh, so trained by uh, trained people, we can add ventilations. Um, now that's that's on the in hospital side of it. The interesting thing is there's the EMS document uh, that says they recommend continuous chest compressions for the first 200 compressions without ventilations was one of the recommendations. So you've kind of got, it seems, two different areas making two different recommendations. And that's great. It's their draft guidelines right now open for comment. So we'll have to wait and see which one ends up in the guidelines with this. Um, I, I think, Landon, you were also talking that there might be a, stu- a new study looking at continuous chest compressions. Can you speak yeah, to that so at the, all? And the, the Research Outcomes Consortium, uh, their website will be in the notes as well, is a study that's been going on for quite a few years now mm-hmm. um, where there's multi-sites being uh, involved in whether they do continuous chest compressions or the old 30 to 2. Now that's involving paramedic responders, not lay people, but uh, it'll be interesting to see if there's a difference in outcome mm-hmm. and how important ventilations are, period, versus interspersing ventilations in the middle of continuous CPR or the good old stop and wait for two good ventilations to go in. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, next uh, recommendation, CPR rate. This is a great one. Those of us who teach ACLS with the last revision, it was push hard, push fast. We all remember those wonderful TV commercials uh, that came out about just push hard, push fast, don't stop. And uh, well, we took that to heart. And anecdotally, in my very unofficial, unfunded study, uh, I would <laughs> notice uh, compression rates between 160, 190. And it's funny because we'd think if someone came in with a heart rate of 100, we'd probably do something about it. Yet Mm -hmm. apparently doing CPR at that rate we thought was okay. Um, So we've thought for a long time the next guidelines are going to say at least 100 but no more than blank. And they've gone to make a recommendation here uh, that is currently there in the draft form of uh, at least 100 but no more than 120. So we saw this coming. Who knows if that's the actual rate that'll end up. And uh, again, it's open for public comment. Right. Um, let's, Let's talk about drugs. Oh, yes, let's do. So you have an interesting study that uh, uh, around epinephrine timing. So mm-hmm. so in the guideline, the draft guidelines here, they're really not being too specific about epinephrine. Uh, lots of weak recommendations. Some studies are showing that epinephrine might be bad altogether. Some are showing that later on in cardiac arrest is really bad. Uh, the recommendation that's in the draft guidelines, again, open for comment, is that if epinephrine is to be used, give it as soon as feasible. Right. And the study actually came out, and it's. I know that there's a lot of studies on um, the ILCOR recommendations, but there was a very, very recent study that came out of Paris, France, um, in the December 2014 Journal of American College of Cardiology. And it is, uh, I think her name is Dumas, I think her name was, uh, Florence Dumas. Anyways, it's an observational study, and it actually looked at epi during cardiac arrest. And what their findings were was that out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, if they gave more epinephrine, there were worse survivals. And if patients did actually survive to hospital, they had poorer neurological outcomes. So it seems that from an observational point of view, if you gave epi within 10 minutes, there might be some value. After 10 minutes, we might actually be doing more harm than we are doing uh, good. So you might see us giving less epinephrine once the patient arrives to the hospital and really focusing on CPR and uh, defibrillation. Excellent. 
and and the ILCOR recommendation would definitely support that. That mm -hmm. there's a higher value on good CPR and early defibrillation than any of the drugs, especially epinephrine. So and it's it's great because as as a person who sees many cardiac arrests, the, the nurses often focus on yeah. getting an IV, putting in an IO, getting the epinephrine, the amiodarone, all of that in, and really the research would say that we'd have a much better impact if we focused on making sure there's good CPR, mm -hmm. making sure we're ventilating well, maybe even communication amongst the team being right. solidified, and then, oh yeah, let's give a dose of epinephrine. We'll see. We'll see where the recommendation yeah. goes, but definitely CPR and early defibrillation before line and drugs. It's been in the guidelines for about 10 years now, but mm -hmm. we still, I still see it in the real world that there's so much focus on those advanced skills. Yeah, and I think it's all a really, at the end of the day, I think it's a little bit ego, right? We'd want to make sure that we are good at performing these skills. And so I think when you get caught up in, I've got to be good at starting lines, I've got to be good in these kind of emergent situations, I think we sometimes lose focus on, well, why are we doing that? Yes, we need to be good at it, but in this case scenario, is this the best uh, use of my time or is this a priority at this moment in time? And you and I both teach ACLS, so we certainly see this certainly in the physician group who are quite anxious to get an ET tube in uh, when we haven't actually got a heart beating uh, back. So it is kind of a focus on I know how to do this. I know how to start a line. I don't know if I'm going to get this heart back, but I know how to start this line. And so we do need to refocus and say, is this the most appropriate intervention at this moment in time for this person? Great point. Uh, so antiarrhythmics, no studies have shown improvement in discharge from hospital from any of the antiarrhythmics. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd encourage you to go online and, and read. They, they definitely delineate amiodarone versus lidocaine, amiodarone out of hospital. It, it just goes on. Uh, same with the epi. Um, so amiodarone is still recommended for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Maybe lidocaine still has a role. It was a weak recommendation. Uh, interestingly, and I'm not sure if this is because of the out-of-hospital group is a different group, but they've recommended uh, no magnesium for any out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. It's not really reflected on the in-hospital population and, and uh, not really sure why it, why it, it, it says that. But again, uh, draft recommendation, and I'm sure we could dig into the, one of the multiple studies in there and, and find that. Um, um, overall, there was the, they're quite clear in saying the evidence is weak to recommend anything uh, for uh, antiarrhythmics. It's interesting. You do wonder if sometimes the drugs are um, not recommended for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest because this is an international consortium, isn't it? And there's a lot of differences in the way that ambulance crews um, handle transport to hospitals where there are some people who scoop and run and some people who stay and play. And I do wonder sometimes if there's a delay in getting the patient to definitive care um, by staying and playing. And that kind of falls into your next category, isn't it? Yeah. And, and so the next one being uh, uh, STEMI, uh, thrombolytics uh, versus waiting for primary coronary intervention or going to the cath lab. And the recommendation here, mm -hmm. uh, and we have to be careful with this one, it's draft, is to not give thrombolytics and instead invest in getting the transfer to the cath lab arranged. Now that 
the recommendation doesn't go any further to, to say if your cath lab's 20 minutes away, yeah, don't give thrombolytics. We live in an area where the cath lab may be nine hours away by mm -hmm. multiple airplane rides and or ground over mountain passes. So are we including those people in don't give thrombolytics or not? And so this is, this is a great one that um, actually the discussion already online has been quite interesting reading people's comments about is this a, is this a, a all far-reaching recommendation or is there going to be a time limit to this and, and we've already worked under these time limits for a few years mm -hmm. of if you're more than two hours more than 90 minutes to the cath lab this seems to be just a general statement. Again, they're draft guidelines so that they make general statements, um, but I encourage you to go online and read some of the research and, and see what you think and, and post some comments. Definitely, uh, it's interesting that you can read everyone's comments and you're commenting to the organization internationally that is going to review and make recommendations. It's quite a quite an interesting process that one individual can just go online and, and share their opinion and it'll be reviewed. And it was kind of exciting, isn't it? I think it is kind of a controversial one, I think, especially living in Canada, where we do have um, a long distance and, and weather transport issues. Um, and we all recognize that PCI is probably, it is, it's the best intervention. Um, but when you cannot offer that in more remote areas, is there another option? So I, I think this is going to be a hard one to sell if there a long delay um, and you're having a patient that has to be stuck there for a while and you see an evolving uh, MI. So this will be interesting to see what they come up with. Yeah, and back to your comment before around sort of the um, difference in care levels provided. Uh, ILCOR is very, very forward with saying that in a lot of their recommendations is mm -hmm. that that EMS systems and rural health care and tertiary health care in different countries around the world is very different. And so you have to be careful implementing some of these recommendations and saying what, you know, if we, if we have an ambulance service that has no advanced providers, obviously using these advanced provider recommendations is not appropriate. And, mm -hmm. and so that may be where some of these uh, hospital recommendations come is, is our, our advanced provider cath lab is just too far away. Exactly. So there's, you do have to think of some local factors in accepting all the recommendations and would this work with us and, mm -hmm. and what's the best thing. So it will be very, very interesting to see how it all plays out in the next year or so. Yeah. And I think overall, it's it as nurses, it's really important for us to understand there's research behind some of this and understand where the research actually needs to take us mm -hmm. and not say, well, I'm going to do this because I think this is the best thing, but say I'm going to change my practice because ILCOR or some other study has said this is the best thing, thing to do. And again, take it throughout your facility, speak to your physician, speak to your leadership and say, hey guys, this is what's new. Right. How are we going to change this? And I'd say the, the big one to start off with right now is is that oxygen for chest pain. I, I've spoken to nurses who still say, well, yeah, but the physician comes in and tells me I need to do this. And mm -hmm. Well, that's great, but you're an independent practitioner. So yeah. let's have a conversation with the physician group as to why this isn't the best intervention. Not get into a confrontation at the bedside, but let's look at it one level above that and, mm -hmm. and have a conversation, an academic conversation about this. 
Absolutely. And if you've actually read the recommendations and read the studies, it's very interesting to have that type of academic discussion with your uh, fellow colleagues to say, you know, I understand that you've asked me to do this, but it's interesting because I was just reading in the latest ILCOR that these studies have actually shown this. So can you just maybe enlighten me why in this particular situation we've decided to give oxygen? And I find that that's much more helpful because you are having an academic discussion. You are planting a seed. Um, and even by articulating it, you're actually um, role modeling that type of behavior for other nurses who may not be as comfortable um, having that discussion. So it really is important for us to know the language, to be able to understand the evidence and be able to have that academic discussion. Because um, it's about mutual respect then, because we're all working for the same means and we're all coming from it from an evidence-based practice. I agree. So let's summarize. Absolutely. So uh, in summary, this podcast, uh, no oxygen, mm -hmm. or at least they better look like they're trying to die and have low sats if you are. Uh, always CPR. And continuous always. CPR might be okay and mechanical devices might be okay, but always CPR. Uh, don't do CPR too fast. Uh, epi might not be as important, might be more to come. Antiarrhythmics, same message. It might not be as important, more to come. And the great question about the cath lab, which I think we've discussed. Um, so we encourage you to go online, read all the recommendations from ILCOR. It's not a difficult read. Most recommendations have one page of literature uh, quoted and then an official recommendation and just a simple bulletin board posting system that you can register for. Um, and this is your chance to uh, be a professional nurse and, and submit some feedback. Uh, it does close on February 28th, and if you're listening to this after that, well, too bad, and you should have listened earlier. <laughs> so thanks for listening to the Nursing Podcast. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.